Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Reframers Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Zach. And I'm Erin. Welcome back. Uh, Sadly, we do not have Cassie with us today. She is busy and we are very, we actually are very sad about it, but she will be rejoining us next week. Yes, hopefully this episode is not too uh, crazy or in the weeds and we kept it like broad and general (laughs) enough and uh, I hope we hope you like it. Uh, Today's there this week's topic rather is um, separation of powers. So kind of just general like structure of the constitution, um, how it's changed over time and how we maybe would like it to change more. Um, so it, it's a, a good topic, I think for the week kind of general. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about sort of the historical founding stuff. The founders were worried about and really, yeah. Proposals that we think could make a difference and maybe parts of the constitution that don't make sense or could be adjusted for our current time. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, it is going to be fun. I'm excited. As people probably remember from their U.S. history classes, the founders rebelled against Britain. We were first a colony of Britain, so part of their monarchy under the king. And then when the founders decided they didn't want to be under Britain, we fought the Revolutionary War so that we could govern ourselves. And the founders set up the Articles of Confederation in 1777. So this was the United States' first constitution. And it was enforced from 1781. So they set it up and it got adopted 1781 until 1789 when our present day constitution went into effect. And the reason why we had to basically redo it is because Articles of Confederation were a mess and they didn't work functionally. And so part of creating our new system uh, under our current constitution was also to fix the problems with the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, that was what the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were sent there for. They weren't actually tasked with creating a new government, which is what they did. They were tasked with, let's go to the Continental Congress and fix the articles because the articles had no there's nothing binding what was written there to actually be effective. The, the national government, the federal government was so weak, it was basically inept. It couldn't do anything. And so they were sent to fix it. But what instead they did was throw it out and come up with the United States Constitution that we live under today. And it's really different. So some of the problems with the Articles of Confederation, like Zach mentioned, the biggest one was that there was no federal power. Pretty much all the power was still in the state governments. And um, some of the biggest weaknesses are, for one, each state only had one vote in Congress, regardless of size. Congress didn't have the power to tax. Congress didn't have the power to regulate commerce. There was no executive branch to enforce anything. And then there was no national court system or judicial branch. So clearly, you know, the executive and the judicial branch are two of our main three branches now. So those were, you know, some of the biggest changes that they made in setting this up. And setting up this branches-like structure, very unique, not something that was, you know, used by other countries at that point in time. Yeah, I think the one thing the Articles of Confederation got right was that it named itself very well. It basically was just a treaty for 13 different states to be like, we're not going to fight each other. We're also not going to help each other very much. It's true. (laughs) Um, the, the fights between states, we, I think we think of federalism now and how there's tension between states, but that existed from the founding. I mean, the different states were very state proud and fought about, you know, who, whose state mattered the most and what was going to be best for their state in setting up this government. So there was a lot of this state pride now, but I, I think it was, you know, it was almost like the state you lived was your country you know, beyond just being the United yeah. States, it was, I'm a Virginian, not I am a citizen of the United States. That was definitely the way things went. It, you, you were your state first. And I mean, that there was fights, not just amongst 
individuals, but amongst delegates to the convention that, you know, we're not going to adopt the constitution unless there's something, you know, beneficial for, like you said, Virginia or for Delaware or what, what have you. So there was really, at that point, it was national pride. The colonies saw themselves as individual, you know, nations practically, not common, you know, cohorts or, or not, not comrades. Yeah. And then clearly this all changed with the constitution that we have today. So it set up this federal government, the states ended up like ultimately having less power, still a lot of power, but, you know, less really this much more federalist system where the federal government oversaw all of the states and actually had ultimate authority on quite a few things in a way it didn't before. Um, Something that I think is interesting about the way the founders set up the constitution is that, or not, not just the constitution, the three branches, they're really concerned about distributing power. So you've probably heard this in your you know, classes, but we're all about checks and balances over here in the United States. And something that I think is really interesting as a contrast to today is that the founders are particularly concerned about the legislative branch. It's the biggest branch. It has the most defined powers in the constitution. Um, Article one is all about the um, powers of Congress. Article two is about the powers of the president. And it's like a quarter of the length of article one. You know, the founders were really focused on Congress being this representative of the people. But because of that, they were also very concerned that Congress is going to have too much power. So really the checks and balances on the other from the other branches were focused a lot on congressional power. So obviously they wanted to check executive power. But I think when we think about checks and balances, we immediately think of checks on presidential power. And that wasn't really the biggest focus of the founders in setting up the constitution. Like they were very concerned about Congress stomping on the rights of citizens. I found a really fun graphic. It's um, from a website called bensguide.gpo.gov. And it's, it's like a cartoon, but it's like Benjamin Franklin's guide to the U S constitution. And it shows the legislative branch the judicial branch and the executive branch in overlapping, you know, Venn diagrams. And, you know, the legislative branch uh, is Congress, which contains the House and the Senate. Um, and they're the ones that are responsible for writing laws. And, and they're the most, that's the most democratic branch that there is. And then, of course, you have the executive, which is the president and all of the agencies that fall under the president. And then you have the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court, and then the appellate courts and district courts. But the graphic is great because it shows the different checks that each branch has on the other. And there are ways that each branch can do things or um, the way that the constitution was written and set and the country was set up, that there are things that each branch can do to check the other. Um, Not like Aaron mentioned, just checking executive power. There's things that they go every which way. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think that it, you know, we, think of the constitution as sort of this immutable document, but the way even just the the branches interact with each other has really developed over time. Like the concept of judicial review is not included in the constitution. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, so it's the idea that the actions of the executive and legislative branches of government are subject to review and possible invalidation by the judiciary. That's basically the function of the Supreme Court is to review these other branches. And that specific concept was not in the Constitution. That came from a case very soon after the Constitution was adopted um, called Marbury versus Madison in 1803, where the Supreme Court essentially said that they had this power. And so then they took it. And that's our system today. You know, we have judicial review is hugely important in terms of power checks and potentially, you know, the Supreme Court's reach being much more powerful than the founders ever intended, um, which I think it absolutely is. Yeah, that that's funny that you mentioned that as like the first kind of thing <laughs> in this discussion is that that's one of the things that I found too is I had to look for a long time like, okay, so if Marbury versus Madison, you know, created this power of judicial review for the Supreme Court, what did the court do before that? Because we grow up as knowing that's what the Supreme Court does is they're the ones that say this is constitutional or this isn't constitutional. So I had to look a long time to try to see, well, what the heck was their job before that? Um, 
And from what I could tell, basically the job of the Supreme Court was just, you will be the state's, you know, I mean the federal government, you'll be the state's lawyers. Like if there's anything where the country is sued for X, Y, Z reason, the Supreme Court and the judges there are the ones that are going to like argue on behalf of the government, um, which is obviously a much smaller role for the judiciary than what it is today, where they can look at executive orders or um, laws or whatnot and say this is or is not legal under our, our constitution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they also initially the Supreme Court would have mediated disputes between the states because there wasn't uh, a specific body for that as well. Those are some of the cases the Supreme Court can do. And it's interesting, too, because there was this concept of federal courts. Another part of the court system that people don't always think about is that we have layers of courts as well. You know, we have the federal courts, which the highest level is the Supreme Court of the United States. Then there are circuit courts and then district courts. And so if you want to bring a case in a federal court, you have to go through these three layers to get to the Supreme Court. But then we also have state courts, which mediate state disputes, as in, you know, state law disputes. And um, there's three levels for most states of their state courts as well. And so sometimes you have a Supreme Court decision in a state court that is, you know, at odds with uh, some Supreme Court decision in another state. And that's actually fine. Things can be legal in other states. You get into the sticky area when you are dealing with constitutional issues that apply across the board. So our whole court system is fairly complicated as well. And I think people don't really understand exactly how it works sometimes because it, you know, there's all these different layers and depending on what kind of claim you have, you can bring a a case in various courts. That's evolved from the founding, from the constitution, because the constitution just set up the Supreme Court. They didn't set up this infrastructure of circuit courts and, and district courts. It was just kind of left to yeah, you guys figure it out. <laughs> right. Like the the concept of allowing Congress to create these other courts was in there, but not that they it didn't the Constitution didn't create them initially. It just said they can be created. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to think about how the powers between the branches have developed over time. So we've talked about the Supreme Court a little bit. The other one that has really, I think, changed a lot from the founding is the executive branch. What's interesting about the executive branch is that a lot of power really from the legislative branch has kind of seeped into the executive branch. One of the reasons for that is that executive power increases in times of war and emergency. Like it just does because the executive is a commander in chief of military and it's also more nimble. And the executive is also in charge of foreign affairs. So when these sorts of things are happening in the country, wars in particular, the executive power increases. And so the big example that, that people point to for this is FDR. Vastly increased the size of the executive branch. It basically created the bureaucracy of um, the executive branch. So all the agencies and departments that are under the executive branch now, uh, many of those were created during uh, FDR's term as, or four terms of, as president. <laughs> Emergencies also. So, you know, hurricanes, other sorts of things that the executive branch responds to because it is faster in responding to emergencies than the legislative branches. That also increases presidential power. So like 9-11, we talked about this a little bit on the Afghanistan episode. The presidential powers under W. Bush were greatly expanded. He could do a lot more than presidents before him. And there's, you know, arguments that I think are probably merited that the powers of the president keep getting bigger and bigger, and they're not really digressing. And so they increase in these times of wars and emergencies, but they don't ever really decrease. And so then you're just kind of sitting at this increased power, you know, whoever comes in next, um, because we're not really checking it. And we can talk about why we think that is. I think we agree that Congress is kind of okay, ceding a lot of their responsibilities over. Yeah, I heard something that was kind of illustrated it for me well was that basically the the ratchet only goes one way. Once the president or, you know, the government gets more power, it's unlikely that they're going to give that up easier. It's so much more convenient, right? If if the president used to not be able to do these things, but now through executive orders is the most obvious one that I can think of. That executive orders I if I'm correct used to be for how the executive, you know, or the president would 
handled the administration of his branch of government, meaning the the various cabinets and and agencies and things like that. But but I think as time has gone on, the executive order is kind of almost a de facto law of, of some kind where it doesn't have to go through the rigorous process voting procedures of the legislative, but there's immense power contained within executive orders these days. And I think many members of Congress are probably very happy to just let these things happen and collect a paycheck. And like we talked about in the Afghanistan episode, not have to put their name to a vote on controversial things and and punt to the executive or punt to the courts and, and let them handle the hard things because they're not as accountable as legislators are. Something that I wanted to mention about executive orders is that it, it is different than law that Congress would pass because it's a lot easier to undo, uh, you know, assuming that Congress is passing laws that aren't unconstitutional, in which case the Supreme Court will invalidate them. But executive orders, you know, like when Trump came in, he undid a lot of the executive orders that Obama had instituted and mm-hmm. Biden did the same thing. Just and you can do that as soon as, you know, someone becomes president that that wasn't before. So there is not the same kind of like longevity, you mm-hmm. know, like a lot of people didn't like Obamacare, but that is that law still exists. It's a mm-hmm. lot harder. That would be a lot harder to deal with on a that law is not going to go anywhere, you know, because it's not an executive order. And that's not the kind of thing that a president would be able to do through an executive order anyways. You can't redesign the healthcare system through mm-hmm. an executive order. But, you know, you mentioned the vaccine mandate from Biden. And I think that's interesting to talk about because for one, it's vaccine or testing, just to be really clear. Like mm-hmm. it's not, you can't work with these companies if you won't get a vaccine, but if you won't get a vaccine, you have to submit to COVID testing. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. But I think that in a way, it, like, it kind of makes sense to me because a pandemic is an emergency. And I think that having that be a, a health mandate is fine. And then if someone, you know, if we change over power three years from now, I cannot believe Biden's only been president for like eight months. This is crazy. But, you know, say we change over power three years from now and the pandemic is not the emergency that it is now, then yeah, reverse the executive order. That kind of makes sense to me. Whereas if it's a law, I think it's going to be harder to reverse. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that. I personally, I mean, we, we've talked about it in the COVID episodes. I don't agree with that, especially where, where COVID stands at this point is warranted. But, you know, I know what some laws do is that they have like a time period where you say this law is in effect for X number of years or something like that. I know that the 1992 assault weapons ban had like a 20 year, um, right. call it like a sunset. And sunset so like, provision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to me, like, I think that that is something that could be used more often where to give it, you know, legitimacy or, or to make it actually how I would like to see it, you know, make the mandate happen, but throw in a sunset clause that says this is in effect, you know, for one year. And then at the end of one year, it needs to be reevaluated if the situation is the same. Like, I, I don't see why that couldn't be done rather than just the executive doing it on his own. But again, that's sure. kind of my, and my I, preference. You know, I don't disagree with that. I think that we've talked about the filibuster and that's another one of the reasons why all of this, you know, some of these big policy decisions are going through the executive branch as opposed to the legislative branch because mm-hmm. laws can't get passed through Congress because of this filibuster problem and needing a supermajority just to pass laws like this. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And that's one of the things that we did talk about in the filibuster episode is the inefficiency of Congress due to the filibuster rule. And, and there's, I think, a lot of reasons why Congress is inefficient, but that's just one of them for sure. Yeah. And again, that's a, that's a rule that is not in the Constitution. Right. So again, it's like extra frustrating because it's not even part of the original system and it has caused so, so many problems, um, even just with the balance of power between the branches. Yeah. So, but okay, I have to say my biggest issue with the way the branches work right now is actually the Supreme Court. That's the one that like drives me the most nuts. What Interesting. Do you think about this, Zach? Interesting. I'm curious to hear why. So I actually saw a headline the other day and I didn't read the article, so I have no idea what it said, but the headline was Supreme Court approval ratings at an all-time low. 
which is kind of funny and ironic to me because Supreme Court theoretically is supposed to not exist for public opinion, basically, like not be swayed by politics. That's the theory. That's why there are life term appointments, you know, to insulate the court from partisan politics. Mm -hmm. I think that everyone thinks that the court is not at all insulated from partisan politics. I mean, no one thinks that there's been three justices in the last like month uh, who have come out and said, you know, the court's not a partisan body which is just like it's like annoying to hear (laughs) you know as soon as you say you know i am not a murderer (laughs) i'm a little suspicious that maybe you're a murderer and so if you come out and you say that the court is not partisan i'm a little suspicious that it's partisan i think that's (laughs) i think everybody yeah agrees with that for sure yeah and i mean justices are chosen they're appointed based on their political views You know, as much as there's rhetoric about it just being, you know, good decision making or something like that, like just really good judges, like it's clearly influenced by their their political beliefs. So my big issue with the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court getting involved in kind of like morality decisions that I really think should be going through Congress. And it's it's hard because. Some of it is equal protection, and that's tough to get around in terms of like marriage equality. That was like a big case that had broader societal, you know, people had ideas on on the morality of um, gay marriage. And I think that there is a good equal protection argument that it is actually unconstitutional for there to be bans against gay marriage. But I would have liked to actually have seen that come through Congress and not be not have to go through the court and for it to come from the elective representatives to say, yeah, this isn't okay. And then that kind of trickles down into all of these other cases that largely get decided on this theory called substantive due process, which is this idea that even if the right isn't specifically listed in the Constitution, based on the other rights listed in the Constitution, you have this other right. So this is big in the contraception and abortion cases, this idea of substantive due process. So it started with a case called Griswold versus Connecticut was one of the big first ones about there being this like right to privacy in your home. The case was um, Connecticut had a ban on married people using contraception and this couple challenged it. And the court said, yeah, you have a right to privacy. You, You can use contraception basically. But even like that, even if it's like, yes, I agree with the with the result of that decision, I don't think the court should be involved in, in getting into these particularly sticky issues where there's a lot of public opinion. There's a lot of deep feeling about it. And, you know, I just think the appropriate place for that is through elected representatives. It's not through the court. So that's my big issue with the Supreme Court. And it allows Congress and all the representatives to punt on these hot topic issues like abortion, previously gay marriage. What are some other ones that uh, campaign finance? That's a big one that with the Citizens United case was a big deal and the rights of corporations, like all of these sorts of things. There's legal arguments for why the Supreme Court could decide them. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not like the Supreme Court cannot decide these cases, but Congress could also be stepping in here more than it is. You know, they're not doing anything improper. It's just that in terms of where, where the decision should be made is misplaced maybe. Um, Yeah. yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. I I think that it is, it is a little bit of a, um, like you said, a punt um, where Congress just doesn't, you know, it's inefficient, which we we know, right? It, it takes a lot of votes and a lot of members to pass a bill, but in order for the bill to pass, there should be consensus of these things. And so I think if you have, um, not consensus necessarily, but there should be enough support for the representatives to pass such and such measures. Um, and by just leaving it to, you know, nine justices to say this is or is not constitutional, um, it, it, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that that those types of decisions are are best made in in the legislature, not in because it, it kind of is turning aspects of the Supreme Court into um, a lawmaking body. Absolutely, and it's they're these big social justice topics, and so you know they're 
it's frustrating to me. And I think it's makes it very easy for representatives to not have to really deal with these Mm -hmm. issues. And I also think that it makes it easier for citizens to not be as engaged as they could be, Mm -hmm. which is another big issue. You know, if you just think like, oh, the only way we deal with this hot topic issue is that it goes through the Supreme Court. I mean, like you can't protests that I mean you could protest the Supreme Court but they're life appointments like what are you what are you expecting to happen there it's not you can't vote them out your voice like isn't really heard and the biggest way it's heard is just electing you know representatives who then appoint Supreme Court justices right it's so far removed that by the time the thing you care about gets to the Supreme Court you're like 20 years too late you didn't elect the right president at the right time who elected the right judge that's making the decision. Like you're, you've already lost at that point. Well, and partisan politics has very much influenced the makeup of the Supreme court as mm-hmm. well, you know, and that's been a really big deal recently. And again, we talked about this on our filibuster episode, yeah. there's six conservatives on the Supreme court right now. And arguably there should be at least one more, you know, more liberal justice because the Republicans blocked President Obama from being able to appoint someone. And so, you know, based on the filibuster, and he was the president that was in power at that point to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And uh, the Republicans wouldn't even hold hearings for that justice. And, you know, the Democrats would probably do the same thing if they, they right. may have done the same thing if they were in that position. But it doesn't really matter. It's just now, you know, you're going to have decades of, of potentially, you know, like conservative decisions. And it is clearly not a non-political body. And these really big political decisions, I just think need to be going through Congress. Yeah. And, and, and then going back to this week's topic of balance of powers and things like that was something that the Senate has the ability, right? Because the Senate is the one that's votes to confirm or deny appointees by the president. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the ways that they're exercising it, but I totally agree with you, Aaron, that it was just a matter of who was the president and who held Senate, you know, the majority in the Senate at the time where they said, no, we're not going to vote. And that, you know, um, denied Obama an appointment. That's actually one of the things that I have, you know, kind of in my thing of what if we did do term limits for Supreme court justices? I am totally on board. I think they should be longer than I would want congressional term limits to be. I also want congressional term limits. But I mean, even if it was 10 years or like 15 years, that would be a huge difference. You know, we would really have a lot more going on the Supreme Court. And even on not a political level, the Supreme Court is a lot more diverse than it used to be. But another problem with having life appointments is that our citizenry changes over time. And when you have people on for life, they become very out of touch with the way the world is working in the United States at at any point in time. And so having these transitions would also make sense for that reason. You know, there was a really long time where it was just white men on the Supreme Court or this another one that really bothers me, even though this is like a particular like lawyer issue is um, most of the Supreme Court justices over the entire history of the Supreme Court have come from three law schools, Harvard, Yale and Stanford. And it's just like, that's great that they're good law schools, but there's a particular kind of thinking and person that can go to those law schools and you're potentially missing out on all of these other people. There's, there's a level of elitism to it that I also really don't like. I don't know. I actually disagree. I think that only those three schools can produce good lawyers. So I I don't see the problem (laughs) with that. I mean, obviously that's absurd, right? Like our country is 200 plus years old. Um, How on earth is it that the majority come from three cities? You know, obviously people come from all over the country to go to those schools, but there's each, you know, each school has its own flavor. Each, each school has its own persona and biases and things like that. And so obviously you're going to end up with probably very similar type of individuals coming out of the same institution over the last couple hundred years. So I didn't know that that's an interesting fact and even more, I think goes to why there should be term limits for a Supreme court. I think like 12 years or 15 years is very appropriate. That's long enough to implement and, and have an effect without being on the court for 40 or 50 years. Like some of the more recent judges are going to be. 
Right. And you can roll the term limits so that they don't all end at the same time. Right. So that you still have your, you know, institutional knowledge and everything. And then just people roll off at different points in time. I think that would be a great way to deal with some of these issues. And then similarly, you know, I think Congress needs term limits. We've kind of talked about this a little bit before, but this career politician thing, I mean, politicians should be civil servants. They shouldn't be making millions of dollars because of book deals and other connections that they make while they're in Congress that they, you know, then take with them and make millions of dollars. And then it's also discouragement for people who are just really smart and successful in our country. Um, don't want to get involved in politics. And maybe if we had some term limits, there would be a little bit more incentive to kind of go in for a few years and then come out, which I think would be great. There's a lot of people who would be great in politics and just don't want to go in. Yeah, I 100% support that. I think that having term limits would be fantastic. I think it would have multiplicative benefits, right? Like for one, it would help get some of the money out of politics Mm. where- you know, if you're going to be a lobbyist, would you rather spend millions and millions of dollars investing in somebody who's going to be gone in four years? I mean, probably not, right? Versus if you're a, poly- a lobbyist, you don't feel like, you know, spending a few hundred thousand dollars over the course, you know, every year for, over the course of 40 years is a bad investment because you know that this person is going to be there. Some of these career people, you know, Mitch McConnell and Feinstein, Pelosi, right? Like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of them. I, I I couldn't even tell you, but and I'm not saying that lobbyists just buy politicians, right? Like I think members of Congress vote because that's how they feel and that's how their constituents feel. But I think institution tournaments will help get rid of some of that influence or that incentive to lobby people because they're gonna be gone. And so it brings it back to the people and the other thing is that the representatives will actually be from the people rather than these people who live in DC and they represent, you know, California's 16th district or whatever. It's like, no, you don't. You're never here and never see you. You haven't lived here. You don't know the problems. You don't know the makeup of your districts anymore because you live in DC and you come back once a month for like three days to visit. I think having people be from the district that they're representing is a huge influence and, and would, would make a huge difference. Yeah, a couple things to that point. I think that the career politician thing, this like longevity, also even money aside, it just builds time for these people to also gain a ton of power yeah. and influence. That's also yeah. a really big thing. And so then, you know, if you're the majority representative or the minority representative, um, like Mitch McConnell, I think his election, his reelection there was so much money in his campaign that came from outside of Kentucky. Right. It was like the vast majority of the money into his campaign was not from local sources. And it's he's like- a, He's a national politician now, even though exactly. he's from a state, he's a national mm-hmm. politician because he's been there so long. I mean, same with with all the, the major parties. Right, and it's, yeah, that's not yeah. that's not specific to, to McConnell. I just knew about that one because I had looked into it. But right. yeah, it's, you know- it, <laughs> They're, you're right. There are these national figures. They're not really about their states in the way that they maybe were. Maybe they were when they first started, but that's really not who they are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think term limits really help that. And everyone agrees with this. There's very few people yeah. that you can talk to who don't agree with this idea of term limits. Yeah. One of the things I saw in researching for this week was Benjamin Franklin argued for basically no pay or very little pay for elected representatives, because his argument, you know, his idea was that this is a service. This is you, you are, you should, you're making a sacrifice to your community to, you know, serve your community rather than going and getting a six figure salary every year. And like you said, you know, then, oh, Hey, I've been in Congress for 20 years. Now I'm going to go and work at, you know, CNN or pick a place, right. Any kind of defense outfit or, you know, anywhere. So that was something I thought was a great point as well. Give enough for people to like make a living, but don't, they shouldn't be making six figures in my opinion. And then just another supporting fact is the president has term limits, right? You can't be elected to the executive more than twice. And 36 states have term limits for their governors. So this idea of term limits is not like something foreign to our nation. We, we have it instituted in many other places. So why not, why not Congress? It doesn't, doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah. 
I mean, there's really not a lot else to say about that. Like I, yeah, just not really arguments against it that I think are at all convincing. (laughs) You know, bringing, making it relevant to our, this week's discussion. I think doing that will actually let people empower them to vote because if they know, Hey, I, I can't be elected any more times. I don't have anything to lose by not voting on this issue versus I've been in office forever. I'm never getting out of here as long as I don't make a controversial vote. Hey, fine. I'm going to sit and show up and not vote this week, or I'll vote along party lines or whatever, even though maybe my district feels different because I know that I'm safe for reelection. Right. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I mean, that's big, definitely a big part of it too. Makes sense. Yeah. I was just going to say, what, what else do we have? The, so this is something that I, you're going to really, really, really disagree with. And I don't even know how it would look because of the way our system is now. Okay. I don't like that every state gets two votes in the Senate because we have a distribution of populations. And it seems really unfair to me that states who have a very low population have as much say as like big populous states when you get down to the the needs of citizens. Mm. And the reason that we have this structure is because of federalism and wanting to protect states' rights. And Mm. like, I get where it came from. I understand we have a federalist system, but we have our governments in the various states. And I think the federal government is for all of the people. I just, it feels unequal to me. I don't like that that's part of our system, but I don't know exactly what you would do to change it. Because if you're going to try and distribute a little bit more evenly, then you kind of start looking just like the House of Representatives. And then you kind of just have two bodies that are sort of the same. So I'm not exactly sure how you would separate it, but I don't find the, you know, we need to like protect our state's rights at convincing anymore. Um, I think almost all of the issues that go through Congress are generally nationally focused and it's not really about protecting all of these like various interests of the states. And I think you have, you can protect your interests of, of your states just through your own state governments. Um, I do hate it. Um, I'm sure you do. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I hear your arguments. Like I get what you're saying. I think we have enough direct democracy already. It, it sounds like at least um, how I'm picturing it is that by altering the Senate to be more proportional representation rather than Two delegates, no state matter what representation. Yeah. Yeah. Then state representation. Like you said, it, we already have that in the house. So I don't know, I don't get what we would achieve by doing that. Um, in fact, one of the things that I have for, for this week is actually to like repeal the 17th amendment, which was to direct ma- election of senators, which made for direct election of senators. Yeah. So then the state legislatures would then go back to electing the senators for each state. And I thought that that would actually be better. I'm not an expert by any means in this, but it seems like, you know, some of the arguments for that was that you then have, you know, you elect your state reps and and, um, state senators and whatnot. And then they're the ones that elect your federal senators. Um, And it allows for more of the system where the, the senators, rather than being like just another legislative body are more kind of like ambassadors for the states. Um, because they're being elected from the state governments um, and would increase federalism in that way um, where you have, you would have to, I think, be more targeted in your scope of laws because now the senators, rather than representing the people, are representing the state's interests, you know, which are obviously are composed of people. And so you couldn't pass legislation that's this crazy, you know, huge uh, omnibus legislation that contains a bunch of stuff because it would have to be appealing to the nation rather than appealing to the senators of that nation. I think that that works kind of in tandem with the term limits thing. Yeah. um, I mean, I hate that. So (laughs) (laughs) we're just switching our, you know, senators hold so much power. They really do have a big say because there are only two of them for each day. I for sure think they should be directly elected by the citizens of the states and they're elected by states or by the, by the people in the states. It's not like, you know, they're elected by all these other people who are not in the state. So I think that their state's rights incentives are going to be as strong as if they were elected by 
you know, state representatives. And I worry about corruption and deals with state representatives for senatorships. So I think that that could be a problem too. And you, you have some incentives there. Could be. I mean, I, I won't deny that, but I think, I don't know, I think it, it might empower senators to be more fighting for their state interests rather than party interests. I think more federalism would be a good idea. And I think if your, your senators come from your states rather than directly from the people with term limits, because I think that term limits should still apply, I, I don't know, I, I could see that as being a good thing. I think I'm realizing where we're like diverging here. Yeah. Because in, in what you just said was, I think more federalism would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I agree with that. You know, I don't have like huge problems with federalism, but having senators spend like significant portions of their time arguing about what's best for their individual states. I don't know how efficient that is. And is it really necessary now? Like we are so much more interconnected than we were at the founding. We have way more national issues, right? That affect the whole nation. You know, in a lot of ways, there's like less need for these states' rights kinds of things. You know, we still have states who are able to act as, this is the like phrase always used, laboratories of democracy to try out Mm -hmm. different kinds of legislation to see what works in their states and what doesn't, you know, and uh, if you're abiding by the constitution, then you can do whatever you want. So, you know, the states still are able to govern themselves in this way. I don't, I don't think that there's this huge need to have this, like, even just state separation. It's, it's helpful for us in a, as big of a nation as we are to break it down into like more bite-sized pieces so that this governance can happen on a local level. But I think state governments can do that. And it doesn't need to go through the federal government. I mean, do you think we should get rid of state like borders and it's we're just like no that's not what i'm saying i'm saying oh, okay. that states can govern that but like i'm thinking about it you know you mentioned like i don't know how we were more proportional in the senate to basically just another house of representatives like mm-hmm. i would be interested in in thinking about just getting rid of the senate just have a house of representatives like why do we have to have this state's interest branch why can't we just have the the people being represented by their representatives and do Congress that yeah. way. Well, I mean, I think the the founding argument is that the people living in the states have different interests. And so in order for the people in the smaller states to not get trampled by the people that are in the, the larger populous states, you need to have some type of, you know, Senate-like structure because, you know, for example, like immigration or something, right? Like states that are on border states have a very different interest in federal immigration policy than states that are on the interior. And that's just an example. But I think that there are issues that do affect states differently. Every state has different economies and and whatnot. So depending on what the state interest is, I think that they're, I I almost think that it's something that the, this probably won't win me any friends, but I think that the people that are, you know, the voters are maybe not aware or educated enough to keep state interests in mind when voting. And so that's why I think having a state legislatures electing senators will actually be a good thing because you have people that have the the picture, right? Like I don't get all the information coming from what the state of California needs, but I think that your state assemblies would have a better idea of that. And so if they're in charge of electing the reps, they can go and vote in the Senate more accordance to what the state needs are rather than being a, a direct representative of the people. I don't know if I explained yeah, I guess, well. No, I think I, I see what your point is. I just, I disagree because I think that representatives could cover those state interests, you know, and if you're smaller states band together with all the other smaller states or other bigger populous states that also have, you know, this, some of the same interests and that does exist certainly. Um, and then you you do your coalitions that way. It doesn't mm. it doesn't mean that there can be no state interests or state rights. You would still have that with um, a representative system, like a proportional system. Mm-hmm. Um, it would just be wrapped together. You wouldn't have this, and it would be more proportional because you wouldn't have this. You know, competing Rhode Island has the same number of votes as New York. <laughs> right. Hmm. Um, I think I would need to look into more like 
what, why did the founders create a bicameral legislature? Like what was their, you know, besides just the Virginia compromise beyond that, like what was the reasoning for them to go in and create the Senate and the house? Like what, what were their things that they were worried about? Cause I don't know that I know enough to say, you know, either way on it really. I do think protecting smaller states was a big part of it. Yeah. And they needed to get the small states on board so that they could get the constitution passed. Mm-hmm. So that that was certainly one of the things. And okay. then, you know, even between the having two branches or yeah, two branches within Congress, there's a separation of powers there as well. So mm-hmm. that I think was also one of the considerations because you need both branches in order to pass legislation. So there's some of that, but right. That I think you can I don't know how important that is. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it does definitely slow down passage of laws, right? Because if it only has to go through one, one house of Congress, then it's obviously a much easier hurdle for a law to pass than having to pass both houses. Right. I guess if you take away the consideration of we're not trying to adopt the constitution, the constitution is adopted. You know, what is the purpose? Like, like you're saying, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there are, are reasons, but I, I can't really think of any beyond what I've already kind of said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, yeah, this is a, th- that would require redesigning the entire congressional branch. So it's really a concept to talk about theoretically, right? This mm-hmm. isn't like a concrete thing that is going right. to happen. Right. But it is interesting, I think, to think about, you know, yeah. what what maybe makes more sense for our current day and age. What did you think about amending the constitution to allow states to amend the constitution. Yeah, so states can do this. It's Congress, this is an Article 5. Congress can submit a proposed constitutional amendment to the states, and then they would have to call a convention for proposing the amendment, mm-hmm. and then two-thirds of the states can approve it. Which is really, really hard to get that many states right. to do it. So yeah. Yeah. it has to be a lot of consensus, if anything maybe require fewer states to need to amend Mm -hmm. you could have it be a majority instead of a supermajority which i don't know that i would like want that but because there i could imagine a majority of states liking something that i don't (laughs) and wanting there to be more consensus but Mm -hmm. then again like the constitution is pretty difficult to amend and i think there are there's there's an argument that it should be easier to amend for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the founders made it frustrating intentionally. Like they made it, they made all of it very difficult because they wanted things to move slow. Right. And it, I think it's tough because, like, obviously the founders don't have our modern day context. They didn't right. know how technology was going to develop, how fast things are going to be able to move in terms of information. And it's a constitution from the 1700s. Like that's what it is. And we've adapted it over time and like, that's great. But, you know, there are things that don't apply specifically anymore and we have to kind of finagle them in. Right. um, Yeah. For them to work now. And I mean, there's a quote, I think it's from Jefferson that it's, it says something about um, the constitution needing to be like shed like a coat, like every 20 years or something and basically redone for new generations. Yeah. I and think, that's like a pretty compelling quote. I thought would be really hard to run a country that way, but there's a good, it's maybe a good thought to be like, we should do an inventory here every, even yeah. if it's like 50 years. I think, yeah, Jefferson was basically in favor of throwing away the government structure every 20 years and being like, of course, the people that are coming after us are going to have different like priorities and they need to, it needs to be redone all the time. I'm kind of glad that doesn't happen. I'm actually screwed <laughs> up. It doesn't happen because I think that leaves a whole lot of room for like chaos. And every 20 years, a state's just going to be like, nah, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm out. And then you have, you know, disillusion of the union or whatever. I think that that would actually be awful. But Jefferson was a little crazy. You know, he's like, the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of tyrants. Like, the dude yeah. was a little <laughs> radical. So great, the, great mind, all but the founders, a little bit radical. They kind of yeah. had to be, you have to have a lot of audacity right. to fight a war against Britain and then like make a new system of government. But yeah. Yeah. First of all, commit treason, fight a war, 
win it, create a government, commit treason again to create a new government and then be like, all right, sweet. Now we run this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, sure. Sounds, sounds great. Yeah. Well, awesome. What, did you have anything else for? No, today? I didn't. Aaron, I'm, I'm actually kind of blown away to tell you the <laughs> truth because we, we came into this episode with very little formal planning. Yes. Much more of like an idea. <laughs> and I feel like we like kind of were on the same page throughout the whole thing in terms of like what we should talk about. And I think that's super interesting. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we got there. It's good. Yeah. So I think that's it for, for today. Thank you so much for joining us and listening. Yeah, um, really fun conversation. And I think, you know, it's I, I'm a little hopeful. The fact that we agreed on so much of the changes that we kind of talked about today, um, that gives me some hope for the country. Um, you know, Aaron, I, I think oftentimes agree on a lot of stuff, but in something so fundamental as like changing the constitution and changing the balance of power for the country. Like, I think that's a very good thing that we, you know, for the most part agreed on. And it was interesting to talk about, um, kind of more of like the higher level government side of things this week. Mm, I like that take. I like that hopeful, you know, positive. Yeah. Change things for the better. Yeah, I mean, if 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 we can agree on like really drastic, you know, changes to the constitution, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that that bodes well for like what what we hope the country will like look like in the future. For sure, for sure. Okay, well, excited you joined us, and uh, please, if you haven't done so already, we would love it if you would go rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Drop us that five star rating, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah. And please send us any suggestions you have for an episode. We are always taking requests. Um, so if you are, you know, on your phone and Instagram and you see something, you're like, Hey, I want to know more about that. Just pop over to the reframers pod on Instagram and, you know, drop us a, a DM and let us know and we'll cover your topic. So, um, yeah, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the reframers pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.